Hi everybody, this is your host Ben Klenner and welcome to The Probiotic Life. This podcast is where we explore the intricate relationships between human health, soil health, and ecological systems. Join me now for another exploratory conversation on the probiotic life. Welcome once again to The Probiotic Life. I am your host, Ben Klenner. Thanks, guys, for tuning in and for all of your support so far. I really want to thank you, um, everyone who's given us a rating and review. Um, Man, I've got some exciting guests coming up. Um, I might give you a few of them. I won't tell you everyone because I like to have a little bit bit of suspense there. But um, Dr. Elaine Ingham, I've actually already interviewed her. Her interview will be coming up soon. Um, Chris Trump from Hawaii, or he's actually in Boise, Idaho now. He is uh, a master of Korean natural farming, uh, teaches Korean natural farming. Who else do we have? Uh, Dan Kittridge from the Bionutrient Food Association. Um, got him coming up. Joel Salatin will be coming on in a couple of months as well. Um, Dr. Susan Prescott, I'm really keen to introduce her, interview her. Um, I have got given a book called The Secret Life of Your Microbiome. And Dr. Susan Prescott is one of the authors of that. And what I love about this book is you look at the back and it's full of references. It's scientific um, literature, data to back up what they're talking about. So... That's what I'm all into, uh, getting the science and then relating that to our life. How does that look in our life? So for today, we have Jessica Chardis. Um, I contacted her through Instagram. Uh, she has a fantastic Instagram account called soil.life, soil life. Um, so yeah, we had a great chat. Uh, once again, I do this over Skype and it's a little bit choppy. I have edited out some of the choppiness, um, so bear with me as I improve the sound quality because I'm a bit of a sound nerd. I'm um, talking about nerd. We definitely nerd out on soil science today. So um, it gets a little bit heavy, but I'm super interested in this. And uh, you guys, this is really important information to understand. This is how soil health connects with human health. So, uh, yeah, she shares a bit about her story, how she went from um, climbed a ladder of sales up to pharmaceutical sales um, as a sales rep, and then how she went from a pharmaceutical sales rep to a soil scientist. She's currently doing a PhD at the University of California in Davis. And, yeah, we nerd out on the soil science uh, it is heavy on science. We talk about carbon in the soil, um, some of the, the cycling in the soil, um, and we definitely talk about the microbes. And I love the way she talks about microbes. She says they are a silent army of allies. 
So she recommends some books in here as well. I'll put those links up on the website. Um, but yeah, check her out. Um, her account is soil.life on Instagram. On Facebook, it's The Soil Life. Um, I'll even link to the research that Jessica is doing at UC Davis. Um, all the links will be there. So yeah, come along for another conversation into the probiotic life. Here is Jessica Chiardas. Welcome to the show, Jessica. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. And uh, thanks from, for um, connecting all the way from LA. That's right. So um, you just showed me a little bit. You, sh- you showed me that you are um, on a bit of property there. And can you tell me a bit <laughs> about the property? Certainly. So um, I'm fortunate enough to be uh, sitting on a, I guess, 300-acre biodynamic farm. Um, It's uh, located in Moore Park, California. Uh, And basically what they have going on here, they're growing lemons, avocados, stone fruit, um, a little bit of vegetable crops that go to, uh, that are distributed through a farmer's market. Um, everything else is distributed at, at markets locally in the LA area. Um, they also have, livestock uh, on the property, which are integrated into the system. Um, and, and also used for, for meat, for, um, consumption as well. So they, they are Demeter certified, um, and they do all the fun, crazy things from stuffing manure into a cow horn and burying it underground to spraying, you know, homeopathic doses of things like silica on, on the leaves um, for, for purposes from everything from protection and, and pest resistance to um, actually applying micronutrients for foliar uptake um, I'm here secretly for a writing retreat because uh, I have a, a paper that I'm overdue for completing. Um, but I, my partner is actually the outreach and research coordinator here. The farm's called Apricot Lane Farms. Uh, he actually began here five years ago as a woofer. Um, so willing workers on organic farms or worldwide opportunities on organic farms, depending on whether you're an old school or a new school woofer. Um, so it's great for people who are interested in maybe being first time farmers, um, people that just want to connect to, to their food system and better understand where their food comes from. Um, generally they like you to commit to at least a month, but it can go on for you know years if it's the right fit. And so he did that for a while, became their volunteer coordinator, and ultimately somehow um, was able to weasel his way into grad school uh, and did a master's up at UC Davis uh, and stayed connected doing his research on, on the soils here on the farm, basically trying to get at uh, this question that a lot of people have that's been largely unstudied in the sciences, um, which is do biodynamic management practices have an impact on the nutritional quality of the food? Um, time and time again in taste tests, um, consumers can tell the difference and actively choose the biodynamic fruit over, over conventional or even organic fruit. 
Um, but there's been no rigorous science that's shown whether or not that actually translates into nutritional quality and, and not just talking about micronutrients there, but things like flavonoids and phytochemicals and antioxidants that uh, also confer nutritional benefits that maybe we know a little less about, um, at the moment. Um, and so now, yes, he's back here doing that and I'm just enjoying the, um, the ability to be in such a beautiful place and um, clear my head for some writing. Mm, yeah, that's uh, it. Does look like a beautiful place. And so you are writing. Uh, tell me about what you're writing at the moment. <laughs> okay, so I'm writing up uh, my first paper actually, um, which is looking at the impacts of nine different management systems over a 20 year time period. So just to take a step back, um, all of these uh, land grant universities were established in the US to kind of do research on agriculture. And some of them were fortunate enough to have a research station set up that would be a long-term investment. So, you know, taking samples from the beginning, archiving those samples, and then being able to look back 10, 20, 30, 50, 100 years later and say, what was the impact of this management on this land? Um, And so in 1993, they started one of these uh, research stations at UC Davis to try to identify sustainable management practices. Um, And so I come in, you know, 20 years later, a little more maybe even, and um, I get the opportunity to compare those samples from 1993 to samples in 2003, as well as 2012. So looking at 10 years and then 20 years of management um, on specifically what I'm looking at is the impact on soil carbon. So Mm. uh, soils, just to scale back for a moment, soils are composed of four different things, organic materials, mineral matter, air and water. Um, And so those organic materials come from plant residues, things that roots pump out, animals or insects, you know, dying and their bodies getting, you know, recycled back into the soil, their excrement, these sorts of things. Um, And they either get wrapped up physically inside of these aggregates, or they get bound to clays, which are charged particles in the soil. Um, And by these two processes, carbon can actually stabilize and stick around in the soil. So Mm -hmm. the more carbon we can get in the soil, that means less carbon in the atmosphere or the the oceans, right? Um, So a lot of people are starting to ask this question, does management have a positive or a negative impact on how much carbon we're able to store in the soil? And does that have an effect on our greenhouse gas um, cycles, right? And and then ultimately to our climate. And there's been a, a quite a bit of research actually over the years looking at the impacts of management on soil carbon. Um, but traditionally, these experiments are either very short term, or they only look uh, and and pun totally intended at a superficial depth. So they may look down to 30 centimeters deep, maybe 45 centimeters deep, Mm, which is certainly where most of the carbon is. Uh, There's anywhere from 1% to 10% carbon in in the topsoil. The concentrations go well below 1% as you go deeper, but because 
the subsoil or you know soil below 30 or 45 centimeters can be so deep it can go on for meters and meters and meters um, because of that volume there's actually far more carbon stored at depth than in the surface um, is that what it is when they talk about the car- the short carbon cycle and long-term carbon cycle is that the difference um, the depth is definitely part of it. We're, again, most research doesn't look at depth, so it's hard to say how fast that stuff turns over or cycles. They've used isotopes um, to, to date some of that carbon, and generally it seems to be on the order of thousands of years old. So we've assumed that exactly what you just said, deep soil is stable soil carbon. Um, but we actually are starting to find that microbes are quite persistent and pervasive and and they may be able to break down that carbon at depth even with under the right circumstances. Um, so what people are starting to say now is that stable carbon is more about that physical lack of access. So like I was saying, being wrapped up inside of an aggregate, which is basically just sand, it's a bunch of different sized particles that get clumped together. Um, and maybe some carbon can get wrapped up in there and protected like a little piece of a leaf or, a, you know, a root or some sort of a residue. Um, and then maybe if there's no microbes in there to eat it, it sticks around. The other thing that's considered long-term or stable carbon now is kind of the stuff that maybe is bound up to clays because it just takes more energy for a microbe to eat that. So would that would the stuff that's connected up to clays, the, the stuff that's... Um, yeah. Uh, bound up to clays is that like the finest part of the organic matter like the humic the humus and what humic acid yeah so the new paradigm is that all the carbon in the soil is fair game and it's somewhere on its path from when it was first brought out of the atmosphere as co2 by a plant in photosynthesis to when it becomes co2 again back into the atmosphere because a microbe ate something and respired out co2 like we do um the idea of these more humified compounds uh, was that there are certain compounds from plant matter that don't break down, that stick around. So we thought things like lignin that were very complex to break down uh, just stabilize in the soil. Um, they're hum- more humified, so to speak. But it turns out that uh, lignin is just as readily degraded these days by microbes as other compounds. And sometimes it's one of the first ones to go if it is if it needs to be broken through to get to something else. Um, the reason we didn't think it stuck around so much is because we weren't able to use the tools like isotopes where we can trace things, and we didn't recognize the difference between compounds that came from plants directly or that went through a microbial filter. But now that we can look at things from a more fine-tuned perspective, we're seeing that... Um, that the reason lignin actually doesn't stick around is because it's harder for a microbe to break down. Uh, that might make you go, well, wait, didn't you just say that was the old meth- uh, old thought that it's harder to break down so it sticks around? But if we think about this from a perspective that I think we're quite good at thinking about as humans, which is an efficiency perspective, you think about it like a fuel efficiency perspective, um, if a microbe has to do more work, to eat something, they're going to blow off more CO2. They're going to respire more in the process. It's just like if you go to the gym and start running around, you're going to start breathing heavier and you're going to blow off more CO2. Um, mm-hmm. 
Whereas if you just sat around and relaxed, you wouldn't have to exert so much energy. You wouldn't produce as much CO2. And so it's the same kind of idea that these um, more complex compounds, they end up just going back to the atmosphere more readily because the microbe has to do more work to eat them. Whereas the simple sugars that a root pumps out, for instance, um, are converted to microbial mass very easily. And then you get this body that forms, which is, we call a microbe, and then maybe a whole community of microbes that form. And then when one day those microbes die, they actually are that stable, humified organic matter that we always saw before and thought was lignin. Oh, that's very interesting. Just dead bodies. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just step back a bit and, and go into... So I, I first saw, uh, well, I guess your work, uh, saw your life on Instagram, I think it was. Um, uh, so t- tell me a little bit about how you got to to that place of um, creating a, a, a social media presence and, and trying to teach people. Okay, well, I'm going to, I'm going to zoom back a little bit. Um, and, and I guess share with you um, how I got to soil science in the first place. Um, cause that will definitely inform a little bit about why I'm doing the communication piece as well. Um, yeah, great. so basically, uh, I, I grew up in the suburbs of Washington, DC, your typical type a, um, overachiever. And I, I think when you grow up in that area, you believe that your life path can consist of three possibilities. You can either be a politician or a lawyer, uh, a CEO or some sort of corporate executive, or you can be a doctor. Um, so I set out on a path, um, initially thinking I was going to go into politics. Um, when I got into university, I did an internship there, uh, got very quickly disenchanted with the political process and thought, oh, I've figured it out. Business is the, is the answer. Business is the way to make change in the world and to help people and, and improve quality of life around the world, um, just to provide us a solution on the, on the free market. So anyway, I switched over to business. I, um, finished up school and quickly got myself a corporate sales job. Um, from there I just, you know, pounded the pavement until I worked my way into a pharmaceutical sales job, which is kind of considered the holy grail of sales jobs, kind of the, the more prestigious, um, one of the more prestigious sales jobs that you can get. And so I was feeling pretty good about myself at first. I went through a, a fairly intensive crash course training of, a whole two months where you learn to peddle your products to a doctor who studied medicine for seven years. So um, you're pretty well equipped to, to handle any argument that comes your way. Um, but basically, I was selling three products. I was selling Avalox, which is an antibiotic for upper respiratory infections. I was selling uh, uh, Statin, which is for lowering cholesterol. And I was selling what we'll just call it a lifestyle drug um, and, and say that urologists are really an interesting breed and leave it at that. Mm-hmm. But basically, I you know, was doing my normal uh, sales calls, showing up, restocking doctor's offices with samples and trying to squeeze in a few moments with the doctor to peddle my product. And um, I was trying to convince him why he should write my my statin for, for some of his patients. And he looks me dead in the eye and in the most serious way he probably could, he 
asked me why he would write this, um, this drug, which has such a high risk for liver failure, when he's getting better results, asking his patients to switch to whole grain cereal. And it was interesting because I had actually had a memo that had gone out a few weeks before about how to handle if a doctor brings up this study that had recently come out showing um, great results using flaxseed. Um, so similarly, a very high fiber um, food product that can help to remove some of the cholesterol buildup in our bodies and, um, and was getting really great results. And they sent us out a memo very clearly and succinctly laying out how to handle those sort of, um, those sorts of comments. So, you know, I was ready and prepared and I came back at him with what they had given me and he just kept tearing the argument apart to the point where I started questioning what I was saying. And so I went home and I did my research and, and started finding, there's also another piece, which is nutrition that I hadn't heard people mm-hmm. talking about much, especially not in my training. And it seems like a lot of doctors don't actually, um, aren't, aren't trained very much in nutrition either. Isn't that right? Indeed. And, you know, there's been this mind-body disconnect, this uh, diet-body disconnect for quite some time. But now that we're um, starting to learn about the microbiome, I think it's led a lot of people to start asking these questions and giving them a lens to look at it through, um, which is really quite interesting. Uh, I had a peer that was also on the sales team in my region who, um, at one of our little bonding events, asked me you know, don't you think it's funny that on these little antibacterial hand soaps we give out to the doctors, it says that they kill 99% of all germs. And I didn't really understand what he was talking about. I was like, yeah, I think that's good. And <laughs> and he's like, no, but I mean, because like it kills 99%. So like, how do you know that that's the good ones? Like, what if, yeah. <laughs> uh, he's like, how do you know you're not just killing all the good ones and the 1% are the pathogens? And and I was like, well, I guess you don't. And uh, again, I I kind of went home and started doing my research and learning about how, you know, most microbes are actually mutually beneficial partners for, for people, for soils, for animals of all kinds, uh, for plants. There's a, a far greater percentage um, that are actually working symbiotically or mutualistically with us than there are ones that are out to harm us or that are what we call pathogenic. Um, there's actually a great book out called I Contain Multitudes. And he actually references exactly this, that it's something like 90% plus that are the good guys. They're on our team. And so when you're using these antibacterial hand soaps fairly indiscriminately, you know, especially for a patient in a doctor's office whose immune system is already compromised, they're getting rid of all of their defenses. Um, and so as I started researching that, I learned about antibiotic resistance that was on the rise. I started learning about uh, the overuse in livestock and for ourselves and um, kind of the fate of these antibiotics in the environment. And all of this information kind of um, left me a little confused as to what to do next in life. I knew that I didn't want to um, I didn't want to sell things anymore. Um, I didn't I, I wanted to try to. Um, help people in a more direct way. And so um, since I had no idea exactly what that would look like, I set off overseas on the proverbial search for yourself. And um, Mm -hmm. 
I ended up coming across some other travelers that were woofing, so willing workers on organic farms. And if I'm being totally honest, when I first heard about it, I was like, that sounds like a great way to travel for much longer with less money. And um, so what started as a very cheap way of traveling around the world um, quickly became a love affair with soil. Um, and so I, this, this interaction um, eventually came full circle and really allowed me to connect the dots on all these different things I was caring about. Um, I found that if you ask enough questions around environmental issues, uh, you know, chronic disease, health and nutrition, socioeconomic justices even, uh, you end up getting back to soil somewhere or another. Uh, and so this is where my story ties back into my previous life as a, as a business person. I had learned all these great communication skills, networking skills, you know, going on this journey that I had gone on and, and learning to understand the world in a different way. Um, I realized that there was clearly a pretty big gap in what the average person thinks and what the scientific community thinks. Um, it wasn't that they were completely wrong. It's just they were not exactly right. And so I recognized a, a need for communicators who are scientifically literate or, or scientists who are literate in communication and um, decided to pursue a PhD in soil science. Um, I don't intend to pursue a career in research. I intend to use what I learn in the lab and what I learn going through and learning the scientific process to help make it more palatable and understandable to everyday people like you and I. Yeah. Isn't it so interesting that you pursued this uh, soil science to understand, but like just even hearing you talk, you want to try and communicate this. You have this heart to actually get this out there um, from your experiences. And I would say that's similar to my experiences of as a landscaper. And then when I started getting into aquaponics, then I was like, oh, it's not necessarily the plants or the fish. It's the microbes. And mm. once I started learning about the, the nitrogen cyst cycle um, and then learning about, oh, there's actually microbes on everything, you know, and like healthy plants need microbes, mm. then, then that, there's that opportunity to um, share that with other people and, and um, get it out there mm. and show people. It's this tiny, thin layer of soil over this planet Earth that mm. sustains us, that keeps us alive. Yeah. So how do you see yourself communicating that? Sure. I mean, you have soil life, um, but just explain a little bit about that and maybe, um, yeah, where you see yourself going with that. Great. So when I first got to Davis, I was fortunate enough to have arrived at a pretty amazing time. Not only what is it the International Year of Soil, which was appointed by the UN, um, but the California state government was just starting off a program called the Healthy Soils Initiative. It is the first legislation to have passed in the U.S., um, specifically regarding healthy soils. At any rate, um, I went to one of the initial planning slash discovery phase meetings, and um, a gentleman walked up to the podium at one point. Uh, his name was John Wick. He's uh, the head of the Marin Carbon Project, um, located in the in the San Francisco Bay Area. And what they had found is they had applied about a quarter to a half an inch thick layer of compost across rangelands and found that they were able to sequester carbon 
um, over several years um, just from that one-time application. Um, but essentially, um, he got up and did a very brief, uh, simple, easy-to-understand summary of the carbon cycle. And he did it through storytelling. He was very positive, solutions-based. While he was the thing that stuck out the most for me from that day, and I, I really appreciated his communication skills, when I walked out of the building with some of my colleagues from academia, people were a bit livid, actually, at his use of hyperbole um, and, uh, you know, kind of this idea of spinning the science. You know, it is it can be a challenge to apply compost in that way to things like rangelands um, where the systems might not necessarily be in place. But nonetheless, it was good science by a great researcher, Wendy Silver, out of um, UC Berkeley. The way he communicated it was very efficient. He had the ears of all the policymakers, and he definitely got through the audience. Um, and so while I understood where my colleagues were coming from and their concern for, okay, well, what if other people just invest all this money in compost and it doesn't work for them. You know, this is one soil type and one climate, you know, we have to be careful about how we scale these things, especially with something like soil that's so heterogeneous. And there are some other issues with the variability when doing soil carbon testing as it is, as, uh, as I found in my research as well. However, um, I also saw it as an opportunity to um, have a conversation about where that line is between framing and spinning science and how we deal with communicating uncertainty to a populace that likes to have things said with authority and with certainty. Um, and so we started a seminar um, called Soil Storytelling where we um, discussed issues like this, but also worked on some science communication training for graduate students. From that seminar came the idea to create this website called Soil Life, which um, we've now started a, a social media presence, as you mentioned, on Instagram and Facebook. Um, but we're also in the process of building a, a website that will be used as a resource, you know, the basics of soil science, but also how soils relate to our everyday lives, everything from our food to our fiber, to fuel, to the air we breathe, the water we drink, the medicines we use, uh, the parks and playing fields that we enjoy. I wanted to um, build something that shows in a very linear, easy to see, visual, positive way how the things we depend on day in and day out relate back to soil and the microbes living in it. Um, and then also be able to offer people solutions and things that they can actually do. Um, and so we wanted to provide something that's positive and solutions-based that says to people, even if it's just in your own backyard, even if it's the rooftop of your apartment complex, uh, even if it's just a vacant lot down, uh, down the block in your city, you can plant a seed and you can do something about climate change or socioeconomic justice or, or hunger in the world. You can make an impact just by um, starting a garden, by composting, by doing very simple things, making small changes in your everyday life that don't mean you have to go back to the land or off the grid or quit your day job. And so that's kind of the idea behind it. Um, we had a few credos that we, we, like, we wanted to stick to to be positive and solutions-based, as I mentioned, um, 
to lead with our why, so to communicate our passion for soils first and the science second. The idea is to lean heavily on digital media content like infographics and um, and videos. And uh, one of our last kind of um, main tenants that we like to hold to is to always use storytelling, mm, um, yeah. highlight the stories and the relationships that people of all walks of life, whether it's an architect or an engineer, an artist or a potter or a pharmaceutical scientist, uh, there's some, some way that everyone connects to soil. Yeah. yeah. I, I really love that whole focus and the, uh, what you're doing with that because I think someone who really impacted me was um, Graham Sait, and he talks um, a lot about nutrition and soil health. And he said the greatest thing that you can do is just do start doing some compost, start making some compost. You know, like anybody can make compost. You can you can start. You know, if you only have an apartment, just start with some bakashi compost. Um, that's that's what I love to see when people are sharing solutions. Yep. You know, for example. I'll, if I watch a documentary with my wife about, you know, um, climate change or environmental destruction, I don't come out of it feeling horrible because I know that there's solutions. But my wife, she hasn't studied the same stuff as I have. She's just like, well, what can we do? You know, there's, it's, it's basically a, a lost cause. And that's when people um, become paralyzed. They just don't do anything. So I, I love that idea of what you're doing is actually giving some uh, simple solutions, um, communicating it very simply, but to get people to start thinking rather than just switching off because they don't think they can do anything. Totally. Um, I think also something that's interesting about compost is it's a, it's a dual part solution, you know, it, uh, it not only provides those nutrients, but it's also a way of dealing with waste products. You know, um, if we can get more people composting on site, you know, and, and instead of just building up these huge landfills, um, we can turn trash into treasure, so to speak. Yeah, that's right. You know, I do um, composting workshops uh, for some of the local um, councils here and people actually want to do something. They just don't know how to do it or they've just never been exposed to it. So being able to give them some simple things that they can do. Because, yeah, like you said, some people, they don't necessarily want compost, but they want to recycle their stuff. Um, and other people, like me, I just want to, like, make the best compost I can. So, like, if there's something that's even slightly bad in our fridge, I'll be like, I'll put it in the compost, put it in the compost. I want those nutrients, right? <laughs> They're like your little children, those microbes, you know. you got to feed them before you feed yourself. Yeah. <laughs> and then I've been getting into um, Korean natural farming, which is sort of, taking it uh, a little bit further in, ter in terms of cultivating different types of microbes. Um, and they, they have a whole philosophy about don't even um, bother really composting, just chop and drop stuff and then, you know, inoculate it. And then, then you're actually not as doing as much work either. I wish it, which I like. That's interesting. And, um, there may be even some biomimicry layered in there, you know, um, because, one of my favorite words that I've learned in soil science is bioperturbators. Uh, bioperturbators. Yes, bioperturbation. Bio so the bio meaning organisms, living things, and then a perturbation, like something that bothers you. Um, 
And so basically what this is, is it's organisms that move through the soil and in doing so they mix it up, they turn it up like a blender sort of. Um, and so it's, it's basically what we're doing when we till, except on a much larger scale in a much more disruptive manner. Um, but there's all kinds of critters like ants, termites, earthworms, gophers, ground squirrels that are burrowing through the soil and mixing it up um, and shred up the residues on the surface until they get small enough that they eventually can get mixed into the soil and then broken down by microbes. Um, if you just leave it sitting on the ground on the surface, a lot of times it'll just all break down right there and go back into the atmosphere. Whereas if you can get organisms, uh, mixing it up and chopping it up, it'll get into the soil more and you'll get more of that nutrient turnover underground. Mm-hmm. What you're saying that just chop a drop. You're kind of just, um, helping the soil food web chop things up a little bit more quickly so that organisms lower down the food chain can get access. So that's very interesting. Yeah, definitely. And I, I've been interested in this um, for a while in terms of growing plants. You know, like we rent a house, so all of my fruit trees are in huge pots and every time I move, <laughs> it's a mission to move these wow. pots. Um so I've been cutting back on those, but the ones that I the ones that I do have, mostly from the um, guys over your way in California, the um, cannabis growers, they're doing like these no-till living pots, and I've started using these uh, techniques on my fruit trees. Wow! And uh, I think you know they have the money, they they have the resources, and they're not necessarily going to follow um, you know what big agriculture is doing sure and they're getting some cool cool results and that's what uh, I'd love to share with people is that idea of everybody is um, can use this knowledge you know about compost about no-till um, mm-hmm. you know just demonstrating what I'm doing in these in these little pots demonstrating what I'm doing with my bioponic system so um, is there anything that you would say that you're really excited about at the moment or, or like sort of things that are um, like the cutting edge of science, the cutting edge of, of um, research? Sure. Um, what excites me most right now in, in soil science is that um, we're changing our perspectives on soil organic matter in general. So instead of it being, like I mentioned before, this plant residue that just breaks down until eventually nothing else can eat it and it sticks around. Now we're recognizing that um, it's all this process that begins with photosynthesis where plants are pumping or taking CO2 out of the atmosphere, pumping sugars, amino acids, and other things into the soil to feed microorganisms. And then as those populations grow up, not only do they get preyed upon by other organisms because it's a dog-eat-dog world in soil, uh, and then that releases nutrients that a plant can take up, but also the microbes themselves as their populations grow and die become soil organic matter. So we've just found that 50 to 80% of the uh, organic matter in soils is actually just dead microbes. And the reason why I think that this is interesting because is because... Everyone's trying to achieve this uh, holy grail right now of soil health. 
And this is a hotly debated topic in soil science as to what that actually means. But one thing that I think all scientists would agree on is that a healthy, that increasing your soil organic matter can help provide increased soil health. And that's because it's been one of the few things that's been shown consistently to increase water holding capacity, pest and disease resistance, nutrient quality of food, reduces the risk for erosion. It just provides this whole host of benefits to the soil ecosystem. And so we've decided that, okay, a healthy, you can increase your soil health by increasing your soil organic matter. Well, now that we know that most of soil organic matter is just dead microbes, then we know that if we want to improve our soil health, we have to build up microbial populations. Um, and so how do we do that? How do we help them to thrive? We have to create an environment for them to thrive in just like us. Um, things like no-till, for instance, going through and tilling a soil is like demolishing a house. Um, so now these microbes go from having lived in a place where there's air and water flowing freely and they have access to oxygen to, um, to complete their metabolism really efficiently. They have access to water to build their bodies and also to, to undergo these chemical processes. Um, and they can move around uh, along these water films that coat these different particles in the soil and, uh, and live a healthy lifestyle that allows them, when they eat carbon in whatever form that might be, whether it's a residue or whether it's something that the root pumped out or whether it's manure or compost, more of that carbon will actually go into their biomass. More of that carbon will build their body than will be breathed out as CO2. Um, and so it's all comes down to an efficiency equation, basically, you know, if you can build an environment that allows your microbes to be more efficient, you can build up your microbial populations, and then you can build up future soil organic matter, which builds up the health of your soil ecosystem. Um, and I think that just completely shifts the way we think about things like agriculture, um, because suddenly it's not just this chemical, physical system. Mm -hmm. Suddenly it's not just this inert body. It's, it's a biological living system that, um, that has positive, that has feedback loops, you know, that if we, as you build your organic matter, you improve the structure of your soil, then you build up the efficiency even more, which allows you to build up the organic matter even more. Um, and so I think it just, uh, when we start thinking about the fact that 80 to 90% of the processes that take place in the soil are microbially mediated, it changes the way we think about the impact of our practices. So suddenly something like tillage, which was always heralded as this great thing because it mixes things up and gets nutrients turned over, is now also thought of something that's destroying microbes' homes. Mm -hmm. um, and so it... it makes you have to consider trade-offs. And uh, there may there is definitely a time and a place for tillage if you have a very clay soil and it's so compact that your microbes can't breathe. It sends it into this anaerobic state, right, where you have different processes going on. So it just, I think it's another tool in our toolkit and it just expands the ability that we have um, to manage land in a more sustainable fashion. Yeah. Can you um, explain for people who maybe haven't... Um don't understand or, or haven't really been exposed to this before, how does soil health actually equate to human health? How does that process go? That is a beautiful question. And I think um, if you know anyone 
who is in research or if you know of anyone who invests in research, I think that this is the number one thing to be focusing on. If you know any policymakers, be buzzing in their ear that we need more funding for research on the connection between soil health and human health. There are some studies out there that exist and there are a few things that we, we potentially know. For one, there's been a bit of research on how the amount of organic matter in a soil or the type of fertility management or nutrient management, so how do we provide nutrients for the plants? Do we use mineral fertilizer? Do we use compost? Uh, do we use manure? Um, so there's been some studies that have looked at how those different management practices impact the nutritional quality of crops. Um, the issue is that the our ability to see how uh, soil health and management impacts human health is constrained by what we know about nutrition. And so um, what are the questions we're asking? What things are we looking at in the plant that tell us whether it's more nutritional, uh, a higher nutritional quality? Um, and traditionally, we've only really looked at things like macronutrients, like how, you know, how much nitrogen, how much phosphorus, how much potassium, mm -hmm. how much protein in the plant. Um, maybe some people have looked at mic micronutrients, how much calcium, magnesium, copper, zinc is in the plant. But where nutritional science is going to now is we're starting to understand there's other compounds involved. There's uh, antioxidants, phytochemicals, flavonoids, um, things that we know less about how important they are to our health, but we know that they play a role. Um, and so uh, some research out of UC Davis showed that using um, composted poultry manure in an organically managed system was able to increase the levels of flavonoids and phytochemicals in tomatoes. And this is why organic matter is one of the things that's widely accepted as a good metric for soil health. Uh, increases in organic matter have shown to increase yield. They've shown to increase nutritional quality of crops as well. Mm. Um, and so... Again, um, this I'm, I'm making broad sweeping statements, and there are nuances, and it does it does depend on the type of soil for sure, and uh, it gets more complicated. But um, for for the real diehard soil scientists, you know, if I'm a desert soil and I have very low organic matter, that doesn't mean I'm an unhealthy soil. But right now we're talking about agriculture and production, agriculture specifically, um, organic matter is going to be a really key constituent for a healthy soil. And then, like I said, from the other perspective, there's been some research looking at um, the impacts, more direct impacts on human health um, from the microbial standpoint, not just this, how does it affect the nutritional quality of the food, but uh, Daphne Miller wrote a great book called Pharmacology, Why Farm Kids Don't Get Sick. And she found that there was a much lower incidence of allergy and asthma in farm kids than in the general population. Mm. Um, and so they think there might be some sort of relationship between the, this inoculation of being exposed to the microbes both above and below ground, informing our microbial communities, which now we're seeing have a direct connection to our immune systems and our um, and chronic diseases such as allergy and asthmas. Uh, sorry, asthma and allergies. Another really interesting thing that I think is worthy of further um, inquiry is that the Japanese have a microbe that is unique. It's unique to Japanese people, uh, people living in Japan specifically, um, but it's a microbe that's able to break down seaweed. 
And most other people do not have this microbe present in their gut microbiome. And so there's this idea that, okay, where, where do those microbes in their gut come from? Well, it's probably from eating the seaweed because it is a microbe that happens to live on seaweed. Mm. And so um, there is kind of enough uh, background to hint at the fact that the microbes that live in our guts are coming to us through this inoculation process. Um, there's at least enough of a proof of concept that says we should be looking further into it. But there was something else that recently just came out that showed they were they were analyzing fecal samples, and um, and they were saying that um, the microbes in our stool are actually coming from. I mean, it, it's quite logical. But yeah, that it's coming from the food that we ingest. And so uh, I don't know, what what do you think logically is better? A tomato that you just picked off of the plant that's only been exposed to the microbes on that soil or a tomato that's passed through the hands of several farm laborers, um, several um, people in shipping and distribution and then all the people in the grocery store and suddenly this tomato has a totally different um, profile of microbes living on it, potentially from someone who didn't wash their hands. And so when we think about things like food safety um, and things like inoculation um, for our guts, yeah, it's just, um, you know, you you have a choice. You, you can take the thing that's um, come right from the ground or the thing that's traveled through many people's hands before it got to you. Mm-hmm. Not to freak people out. Yeah. <laughs> and actually that... That just reminds me of um, in another interview. I was uh, someone was telling me about that. Oh, I can't remember something like fifty percent of our fecal matter is dead microbes, which is pretty much the same as in soil, isn't it? It is. I, I find that really interesting. It's, and I'm so glad you just said that because I've been I've been telling people that the poop people and the soil people really need to start talking more. Um, <laughs> There's definitely some some parallels there. Yep. So this this podcast is called the Probiotic Life, and I've sort of defined that for myself more than just probiotics in terms of what's in our gut, but probiotic in terms of for life. Uh, what ideas would come to your mind when you think of a probiotic life? That's a great question. Um, well, first off, I. I just want to draw attention to what you just said, which is kind of the background of this word, you know, pro meaning for and biotic meaning life. Um, And I just want to contrast that to where we started with my story about selling antibiotics and kind of look at that word, antibiotics, so anti-against life. Um, And so when we think about a lot of these things that we use kind of willy-nilly, these biocides, that we should really try to be a little bit more thoughtful about when and where we use those things. Yes, there are situations where you have a serious bacterial infection and it's not going away and, and you may need to resort to, um, to something extreme. But bear in mind that it is indiscriminate and that it is anti-life to the fullest extent of it. Um, we haven't perfected these things to the point where they're... Um, you know, yeah, you can specify for certain classes of microbes, but um, it doesn't know. There, there's no label on the on the microbes in your gut that say good or bad, and you're not getting to choose which of those you knock out when you take these things. 
so whether it's something you're ingesting yourself or whether it's something that an animal is being propped up on, I guess back to your question, what is a probiotic life? It's a life that lets life thrive as much as possible. Um, and so to me, that's trying to do whatever we can in our power to facilitate life thriving. Um, and, you know, when you think about that from the soil scale or the soil perspective, it's like, how can we feed the soil as much as possible? Not feed the plant like we've traditionally done, but feed the soil um, so that you can build up as vibrant and vivacious of a community as possible underground so that that life will be get more life and more life still. Because if you add enough carbon and water um, into the soil, you're going to build up a microbial population, which then builds up a protozoal population, which then builds up a population of invertebrates, which builds up a population of macrofauna, you know, which eventually makes its way into to people, right? Um, and so, you know, then again, taking that probiotic perspective of like, how do we let life thrive for ourselves? It's the same sort of thing, putting in the right foods, um, staying well hydrated, staying active. These, um, these ideas around health, they parallel very uh, well between the soil and between the human body. And, and, and so, you know, from, from the soil perspective, again, not leaving the soil nude to blow away. Um, you know, something I've heard a lot recently that I find really interesting is this idea of regeneration. Um, we're constantly focused on the problems. You know, you don't hear the story on the news of the guy who planted uh, thousands of acres of forest. You just hear about the guy who tore it down. Um, the beautiful thing about soil to me is that although we can lose inches of topsoil in a matter of years and in, in just some really poor management practices, you can watch it blow off your field. Uh, there's no limitation to how much soil we can form. And it might happen on a much slower uh, time scale, geologically speaking, but if you let life thrive, you are forming in, in the soil, you're forming soil in the process. Um, so you need life to create soil, mm. but life then continues to create soil further. So it's this beautiful cycle of growth and decay that sustains us. And, and for me, it's like, uh, there's no known planet in the universe with life. And similarly, there's no known planet in the universe with, with what we consider soil. Um, those two things go hand in hand. And so if we can improve the health of our soils, we can improve the health of our plants. Uh, we can improve the health of our animals, including ourselves. And that goes all the way up to the planetary scale to, to continue to create an environment on earth that lets life thrive. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And and that's why we need people like you doing some science, doing sure. the science to actually get it down. Like like you said, I I let my son play with me in the compost. You know, we're we're turning it over, we're putting it out. I put my compost through my um, worm bins as well, and he's just there. You know, and I don't care if he gets all dirty in it. And then we'll just go inside, and I I'm probably not as fussed as my wife as if he washes his hands before he eats some food. Yeah. <laughs> but um, there's, so there's that logic there, but we need people doing the science. Um, and that's what I, um, I'm, 
I thank you for the work that you do and the science that you do. Um, and I would love to see a bit more citizen science, you know, like how can we actually get some science um, with something that, you know, m- not might not necessarily be funded sure. because there's no money in it, but we, we could all take samples and all, you know, I don't know. I, well, I haven't figured that one out yet, but I'd love to see that. Well, I'm of the frame of mind of sharing is caring. So I'm going to share my million dollar idea here that I would love to see happen, which is um, a citizen science project where people uh, who never gardened before um, or shopped at their farmer's market or what have you take stool samples and send them in for microbial analysis. And then they plant a garden or they start shopping at a farmer's market and they get soil samples that they send in. And then three months, six months, nine months later, send in stool samples again and see if we can see any of, uh, if we can see a shift in the microbes in their gut uh, that moves towards a similar structure, community structure in the soil that they were gardening in, for instance. Wow, that's I think, cool. Uh, yeah. It would be a totally manageable citizen science one, but we need someone who knows what they're doing there to, to get that going. For sure, yeah. Well, that's a good idea. Um, uh, if, anyone el- if anyone out there yeah. wants to, uh, wants to uh, think they could be eligible for it, let me know and we'll get it going. Definitely. So any, um, any sort of like final words of wisdom, any takeaway, um, and how can people contact you, you, you know, um, on social media or if people have questions? Well, I, I will, uh, I will tell you this one thing and I, I still haven't read, I full disclosure, dirt is good, but it's this book about why kids need exposure to germs, um, written by a guy by the name of Jack Gilbert. And one of the statistics they throw out is that a study of over 300,000 children showed that parents who took a pacifier that fell on the ground and put it back in their child's mouth actually developed less allergies, less asthma, and less eczema than those who cleaned off the pacifier before giving it back. So uh, I don't know what kind of ground it's falling on. I can't say that these pacifiers fell in soil specifically. But it at least gets us thinking about the idea that what we commonly think of as dirty might not necessarily be equated to unhealthy. Um, The converse to that, being too clean, might not necessarily relate to being healthier. Um, And so these microbes that we have commonly feared are actually a silent army of allies constantly working uh, night and day underfoot to grow our food, to filter our water, to keep a clean atmosphere that, uh, that has the right amount of oxygen in it and the right amount of CO2, uh, to keep our planet in this sweet spot in the Goldilocks zone that we enjoy it being in because it sustains life. Uh, it's, it's just, um, it's time for a, for a paradigm shift in, in how we view soil and how we view, um, microbes instead of viewing it as dirty and and as pathogens um we need to start thinking about what are the relationships that we want to cultivate and uh, a healthy relationship with soil is one that i'd like to see more people cultivate and um one way i'm trying to do that is by 
using education that is inspiring and exciting and digestible and fun and design friendly um, and interactive. And if anybody wants to check that out or get involved with the work we're trying to do, um, you can find us on Facebook at The Soil Life or on Instagram at soil.life. Um, we'll be launching our website hopefully in the next few months. And yeah, otherwise you can look me up on, on UC Davis if you're interested in the research I'm doing. And I think the more we can get um, people thinking about these things across disciplines, collaborating, the more quickly this is going to advance. I'll leave you with a, a fun fact about um, soil microbes that I think is really interesting, which is that when they take degraded lands and they start to restore them, over time, the microbial communities not only become more diverse, but they become more physically connected with one another. And in the process, they become more efficient at converting carbon that comes in to the soil from the atmosphere to, soil, to carbon that sticks around in the soil. And I think that's a great analogy for, for human life, that as we become more diverse and more connected, that we can become more efficient um, there are things like mycorrhizal fungi in the soil that connect plants to one another so that they can communicate more readily and share resources more easily. Um, and I think that goes for us as well. Social media and the internet uh, is a tool that some people are trying to push back against or, or you know, afraid that it's going to make us too disconnected, but it's also a tool that can be used to connect us more. Um, and so if we can bring more and more people together across disciplines. I think we can start to really focus on solutions um, to a lot of the global challenges we face. Mm -hmm. Jessica, thank you so much for your time. This has been um, a really awesome interview. I've really enjoyed um, just connecting with you on, on soil. <laughs> it's been fun. Yeah, me too. Thanks for letting me nerd out for a little bit. <laughs> cool. That's great. <laughs> well, thanks everybody for listening to The Probiotic Life and we'll see you next time. Cheers. There you go. Another piece in the puzzle to show how we are inextricably connected to nature. So all of those links will be in the show notes. And if you learned something, hop on Facebook and share with us. I'd love to hear what little golden nuggets of wisdom you gleaned from that. So we've got more great interviews coming up and deeper down the rabbit hole we go into the probiotic life. So stay tuned and until next time, cheers. Thank you for listening to The Probiotic Life. You can find us on Facebook at The Probiotic Life, on Instagram, The Probiotic Life, and on our website, theprobiotic.life.